0: The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. We're here this morning to study in the life of David. We are studying in that in 2 Samuel 24. We're going to be taking a look at uh, really David's last great sin that he committed in his lifetime Uh, The reason I titled it The Last Great Sin is because surely David committed other sins between this time and his death, but uh, he he actually uh, committed a sin here that was a pretty bad one, and there were consequences of it, and we're going to study that here this morning. Before we do any of that, let's take a moment for silent prayer to ensure our hearts are prepared for the study of the Word of God. This silent prayer gives us the opportunity to confess sins if needed, but also to humble ourselves that we might be teachable, humbling ourselves before the eternal truth of God's word and before the ministry of the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand these things. Shall we pray? Most gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this blessing of being able to have services this morning, albeit virtual. I thank you for the men who are here to help the logistical needs of putting together the virtual service this morning. I thank you for those who are listening online right now, live, or those who might listen to these lessons after the fact. And I pray that these things will be a blessing to everyone who hears, that, uh, those, that those that are hearing your word, uh, dwelling on your word, considering what it means, Uh, that you will use the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Father, to help them understand what these things mean and how to apply these things in their daily lives that they might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his most precious and beautiful name. Amen. All right. Well, um, a couple of things I wanted to talk about before we jump in on this. One, I was really thankful last week for how Derek was able to jump in and add some some color and some richness to the service with his information he had uh, about the mighty men, David's mighty men, and and uh, he and I exchanged some communication after the class, and he's read some books and uh, looked at some things that gave him additional information, but that's something very personal for him as someone who served in our armed forces and was an Army Ranger and somebody who uh, was in some very, very difficult situations as part of his service during his deployments. Uh, this was a very important thing to him is to have a connection with uh, David's mighty men of valor. And so I really appreciate what he was able to add last week to the service by doing that. And that's one of the beauties of when we have face-to-face teaching. You know, that's what we're this morning, uh, you know, we're going virtual and you lose that. Not only do we lose the fellowship aspect of it, but that sort of thing where somebody can add such flavor and richness to a service like he did Last Sunday. Uh, I also wanted to talk a little bit. I'm going to talk about it next Sunday morning too, but talk a little bit about what we've been studying in Romans for those who are not taking part in the Romans study. Uh, We're looking at the beginning of uh, Romans chapter 7, and we're in a section right now where Paul is highlighting the fact that uh, he was not really aware of his own sin problem and how sinful sin really is until the commandment came, until the law came. And showed him that he fell short. And I'm summarizing what we've been looking at in verses 7 through 13. But he said he was going along just living life. No big deal. And then all of a sudden the commandment came to his attention. And guess what? Uh, he wasn't able to live that carefree life anymore. He effectively died because he became aware of his own sin and how sinful sin really is. And the example uh we had a on Wednesday night, Benton brought up an example that was really powerful in terms of cancer as an analogy, talking about cancer. And we'll, again, we'll talk about this next Sunday morning in a Romans class, but I thought it was worthy of talking about here. You know, if someone has cancer and they know nothing about it, uh, they still have cancer. They're just unaware. I mean, they're living their lives with no awareness whatsoever of the fact that they have cancer. And then when a doctor diagnoses that and now they're aware of the fact that they have cancer, they, they can't deny it. It's now very much a realization or a revelation that's come to their attention that they have a growth inside of them, which is causing them harm. And they understand the seriousness of what that cancer means. You know, whatever level of cancer it might be, they understand what the seriousness is. And what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 13 is he's saying, look, the commandment is not wrong. The commandment is holy and just and good, just like the doctor's diagnosis is not wrong. The doctor making the diagnosis, he didn't do anything wrong. He properly diagnosed an illness that you have, but it was through that, that you now became aware of the cancer that you have in your body. So now you were just going along living life utterly unaware. And now all of a sudden, not only do you know that you have cancer, but you know the seriousness of that cancer and what is involved in, uh, in trying to do something about it. Is it, is it something that's potentially fatal? Is it something that can be cured? You understand all those things. So For Paul, that's what was going on with the commandment. In in the case of, of Paul, he was talking about you shall not covet. He was talking about how that commandment made him aware of how sinful sin really is. And so the commandment's not bad, but the commandment itself revealed to Paul that he was a sinner and that sin is utterly sinful. So. It's very important for us to understand that that is often the role of God's word is that it will show us where we fall short. And I've told you this before when I was younger in my Christian faith, I hated it when I would read a passage and it would reveal to me that I was doing something wrong. I would read something in the scriptures or I would be listening to a Bible class And all of a sudden I'd go, oh, man, I've been wrong about that. You know, I've been doing the wrong thing. And uh, now I have a totally 180 opposite view of all of that. Now, when that happens, when the scriptures reveal to me uh, where I am wrong, where I am off path, it actually is a good moment for me. Because now I can I can look at that, I can dwell on it, I can allow the Word of God to do what it does and correct me in my thinking and correct me in my actions rather than having to learn it through trials and testing. Uh, it's a blessing when the Word of God does that. But see, this is why, you know, I want to talk about this briefly. This is why it's so important to understand that the message of God's Word is often convicting It's not supposed to be if you if you go to Bible class or you attend your church and I'm talking in general here. If you go to a Bible class, excuse me, a home Bible study or you go to a church somewhere and every single class you go to or every single church service you go to, you walk away just feeling so good about yourself and how wonderful life is and how everything's great. Then you're not being taught the word of God. Because the word of God is going to is going to stick it to you. Sometimes the word of God is going to convict. And that's my job, actually, as your shepherd here at this church is to teach you what the word of God says. And as I do that, to allow it to do whatever it does. Now, when I teach teach something, I have no idea who it's convicting and who it's not. Right. Some people, when they hear it being taught, it's just like, okay, all right, well, good, 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 good. I'm on the right. I'm on the right path. But for others, the exact same message is convicting. It's, oh, man, wow. What's that? Yeah, well, that's Jesse likes to say that when I when I when it's uh, when it's affirming, I'm preaching. But when it's not, when it's convicting, I'm meddling. <laughs> right. At that point, I'm meddling in your lives. Right. Uh, but that's really what it comes down to. Right. Is it starts to it starts to convict. And I have no idea when I preach the word which one it's doing. And that's the beauty of it. Uh, it's, it's going to do what it does. The word of God does not return void. It's going to do its job as it goes forth. And so you should, you should experience from time to time, the word of God convicting you and making you realize, uh, what you have not been doing in the right way. And that's the, that's that doctor's diagnosis. If you will, you just have been diagnosed. Uh, the word of God has diagnosed, The fact that you're not doing the right things and now you can do whatever you want with it. It's just like with cancer. Some people uh, determine that like if it's in particular, if it's something that's fatal. uh, I just heard, for example, about someone who uh, they got uh, they they knew somebody who got cancer And uh, the diagnosis was that they would live four to six weeks and that they would be able to, you know, with treatment, maybe they could live six weeks. But without treatment, they would probably die in three or four weeks. And that person said, forget it. I'm not doing the treatment. If I'm going to die in four to six weeks, then, you know, forget it. I'm not going to do anything about it. Other people, they get a diagnosis. And the answer is maybe if they get treatment, they could be they could be cured. Uh, or maybe they could have their life extended by by some amount that, that's important to them. So they make a decision. They get the diagnosis, and then they make the decision as to how they're going to proceed. Well, the same thing's true for you. Remember, James said, you know, you can look in the mirror, and then as soon as you turn away from that mirror, you can forget who you are. You can forget what you saw. Same thing's true of the Word of God. You can hear the Word of God, and it can be convicting. And you can you can realize that you're not doing the right things, and you can walk out of that Bible class or... Stop reading your Bible or whatever you're doing. You can just close your Bible and and look away and just forget what you just learned and not do anything about it. But guess what? God's going to keep trying to teach you that lesson and he'll keep trying to teach it to you from the word of God. And if you don't pay attention and you don't learn it that way, he'll teach you another way because he's going to keep trying to teach you whatever that is. So count it a blessing when you learn it from the word of God. When the word's convicting, count that a blessing. All right. To our life of David study. David's last great sin. All right. The beginning of chapter 24, 2 Samuel 24, we learn that God's anger was burning against Israel. And that led to David taking a census. It says here now, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and incited David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. Now, when it says the anger of the Lord again. Burned against Israel, I believe probably you got to go back to the whole incident with uh, what happened with um, what Saul had done to the the Gileadites and the, all of that, that that unfolded from there. And uh, you know we 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 don't know exactly what the previous incident was, but it probably goes back to that when David had to deal with that whole issue of the consequences of what Saul had done and killing killing some people when they should he shouldn't have. Uh, but again, the anger of the Lord is burning against Israel here. All right. We don't know in this case what even caused God to be angry at this time. It's not mentioned, but what we can be sure about is Israel was falling short of God's holy standards. We know that We, we don't know what it was. We don't know what they were doing, but somehow Israel was not doing what they were supposed to be doing. And as a result, God was angry with them. Now, interestingly, God and I have a point here, God can bring judgment on a nation through bad decisions of a good ruler. Now, God can bring I'll add to this. God can bring judgment on a nation by giving them a bad ruler. Think about that. And and uh, pay if you just pay attention to the history of our own nation, you can see that where God can bring judgment upon a nation by giving them a bad ruler. But God can also bring judgment on a nation through bad decisions of a good ruler if we look here at 2 Kings 18 and we read about Hezekiah here in verses 1 through 6 of 2 Kings 18. Now, it came about in the third year of Hoshea the son of Elah, Ela, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. <clears throat> Excuse me. He was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. He did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it. And it was called Nehushtan. Um, He trusted in the Lord. And by the way, Nehushtan, I think, is... uh, Yeah, just it means it's just a piece of bronze, but they were worshiping it, right? They were burning incense to this thing like an idol. Uh, He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him, there was none like him among all the kings of Judah nor among those who were before him. For he clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. So clearly Hezekiah is a good king. He's one of the best of the of the post Davidic kings. But when we get to chapter 20, look what happens here. At that time, Barodak Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. Hezekiah listened to them and showed them all his treasure house, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious oil and the house of his armor and all that was found in his treasuries. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah, the prophet, came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where have they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They have come from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in in my house. There's nothing among my treasuries that I have not shown them. Now, this was a mistake. This was a bad decision. Isaiah goes on to tell him, Oh, by the way, everything you have is going to be carried off to Babylon. There's going to be nothing left. He goes on and talks about that. So Hezekiah was a good king. I mean, he was given to the people of Israel as a blessing. So he was a good king, but he made a bad decision. And that bad decision was punishment upon the nation as part of the judgment of Israel. Now, God and his permissive will allowed Satan to influence David in this bad choice that we have here. If we look at David deciding to take a census, census if we go to the First Chronicles record... Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. This is the same, this is the same incident here. It's in 1 Chronicles instead of in 2 Samuel. But this tells us in 1 Chronicles, it tells us that Satan was involved. right? So the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and Satan influenced David to, have, to cause him to make a bad choice and to number the people. Now, by the way, the numbering of the people, as we're going to see, uh, when we look at this, <clears throat> the numbering of the people was not like what we do here in our country today, right? We have this whole idea of the census in our country today, and the purpose of that is <laughs> it's far cry, actually, from what Israel was doing. What we have today is, well, they want to know how many people live in our country because they want to know how they can distribute all their um, welfare programs and other things of that nature and how how they can make sure that they have the proper um, Fire, there's positive things out of it, how they can have the proper fire department facilities and, and you know, they're assessing police departments and there's all kinds of things. But you know, if you think about the federal census, I mean, let the local let local governments do their thing. But nonetheless, we have a federal census here and they use it really for for more of a government oversight type thing. What they were doing in Israel is they were assessing what kind of military forces they had. You're going to see that when we go through these passages They were assessing their military capability. So that's what David's doing. He's assessing the military capability of Israel. So David insisted that a census be taken so he could evaluate Israel's military might. All right. King said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go about now through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and register the people. It's actually muster. But that's the idea. Register the people so that I may know the number of the people. But Joab, this is interesting, because Joab has done a lot of bad things in the life of David. But yet, this is one where Joab even himself recognized this wasn't good. Joab said to the king, now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? In other words, he's saying, God can. it doesn't matter how many we have. God can actually multiply us to be whatever we need to be, right? He can give a, He can make us a hundred times as many as we are right now. Uh, and, and he's saying, may the Lord do that while you can still see, David. But why do you delight in this thing? He's, he's asking him because he knows he, what he's doing is not right. Whoops, sorry about that. That's what I just pointed. Joab knew that this was a bad idea. If we go to First, uh Chronicles 21, 6. Um, it says, uh, but he did not it's talking about Joab. He did not number Le, uh, Levi and Benjamin among them for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. So we see that Joab was not pleased with this and he actually questions David about it. Then in verse four, nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the commanders of the army. In other words, David was very insistent about this. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to register the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and camped in Ar on the right side of the city that is in the middle of the valley of Gad and toward Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to the land of I didn't even look at this one, Tatim Hodshi, and they came to Dan Jain and around to Sidon, and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites And of the Canaanites, and they went out to the south of Judah to Beersheba. So when they had gone about through the whole land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of the nine months and 20 days. Look at that nine months and 20 days is how long it took them to do all this. And Joab gave the number of the registration of the people to the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. So that's the point. That's what they're doing is they're assessing their military capability. 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. By the way, I wanted to just highlight this. We'll look at some verses here. There were times when a census was appropriate. Right? There were times when a census was appropriate. Exodus thirty twelve. When you take a census. Now, but notice, I want you to notice something in this verse. When you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them so that there will be no plague among them when you number them. The idea is that uh, that we need to ask God's forgiveness when we're doing this, that there's actually something about this that's not really totally uh, right. And so each person must give something because uh, going through and numbering the people is not really a great thing to do. But It was actually specified in certain cases like we see here in Numbers. Numbers 1, 2, and 3. Take a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel by their families and by their father's households. According to the number of names, every male head by head from 20 years old and upward, whoever is able to go out to war in Israel, you and Aaron shall number them by their armies. You notice again, look at the language. That's what they're numbering for is to figure out who can go out and fight with us. In verse 4. Two of Numbers, Numbers four two, take a census of the descendants of Kohath from among the sons of Levi by their families, by their father's households from thirty years and upward, even to fifty years old, all who enter the service to do the work of the tent of meeting. Now, in the case of the Levites, they're wanting to know how many are able to serve in the tent of meeting. Verse twenty two, take a census of the son of Gershon also by their father's households, by their families from thirty years and upward to fifty years old. You shall number them all who entered to form the service to do the work in the tent of meeting. So in this case, in addition to numbering the ones for the armies, there's a numbering of those who can serve. In the tabernacle. Go on to Numbers 26 verses two through four. A take a census of all the congregations of the sons of Israel from 20 years old and upward by their father's households, whoever is able to go out to war in Israel. So Moses and Eleazar the priest spoke with them in the plains of Moab By the Jordan of Jericho, saying, take a census of the people from 20 years old and upward as the Lord has commanded Moses. All right. And then in Numbers 31. Verses 48 and 49. Then the officers who were over the thousands of the army, the captains of thousands and captains of hundreds approached Moses and they said to Moses, your servants have taken a census of men of war who are in our charge and no man of us is missing. So there were times when the census was taken and there were times when it was appropriate, but this was not one of those times. This was not one of those times. It says here in first Chronicles 21:7, God was displeased with this thing. So he struck Israel. So this was one of those cases when David was not given instruction. No, first of all, David did not receive the word of the Lord saying, go and number the people. Uh, one of his prophets did not come to him and say, I've received the word of the Lord and the Lord has told us that we need to number of the people. David did this. He had a reaction and he called for a census. Uh, and we don't know exactly why, but he did. We know that Satan tempted him to do this and he did it. And uh, he has called for this census, but it was not pleasing in God's sight. As I mentioned, when we were doing the reading there, Uh, Just to show you the magnitude of it, it was quite involved. It took over nine months to complete. I mean, that's a big deal, which, by the way, we've gotten spoiled by everything being so instantaneous today. I mean, if you go back in our own history of our country, when we would have elections in the past, it was often a month before people would know who won the election. I mean, you go back to the time of Lincoln, for example, during the Civil War era. It took weeks before people actually knew. Who had won the election? So uh, that was pretty common back in the day. Now it's interesting. We have numbers in First Chronicles that are different. Uh, in First Chronicles twenty-one five, it says Joab gave the number of the census of all the people to David, and all Israel were one million one hundred thousand men who drew the sword, and Judah was four hundred and seventy thousand men who drew the sword. Now we don't know why the numbers are different, and between Second Samuel. And uh, and First Chronicles, but it's possible that we can surmise there's one million, one hundred thousand. That number probably includes the standing army, uh, which was uh, there were twenty four thousand in each of the twelve tribes. That's two hundred eighty eight thousand, which if we read through first, I'm not going to go there. But if we read through First Chronicles twenty seven, one through fifteen, I guess we can look at it briefly. Um, Hang on. Why is my computer doing that? Why are you being like that, computer? There we go. Now, as they went through there, you'll see that there were divisions, 24,000 here, 24,000 there. Right. As we go through each of these, you notice in his division was 24,000 in this division was 24,000, 24,000. It's mentioned over and over again uh, that there's 12. Then there's 12 of these listed here. And so it's possible that in Second Samuel, when we get the 800,000 number, that was the number of men that were accounted for, that were beyond the standing army that they already had. Now, that's not that's not 300,000, but by the way, there's also references in Scripture about another 12,000 that were uh, horsemen that were there that served the king. So it's possible that there were 300,000 that they already knew about. And so when David sent them out, they didn't bother numbering those. What When they brought that number of 800,000 to David... He, David already knew about the 300,000. In First Chronicles, it mentions that uh, 1.1 million number simply to include everybody. So that's probably why the, the discrepancy is there. And then um, the 470,000 number likely does not include uh, the chosen men of David. Back in Second Samuel 6.1, it said, Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. So it's very possible that that 470,000 number in First Chronicles doesn't include David's chosen men. Uh, we don't know. There's really no that's why I have likely the difference the difference here this is likely why they're different. We really don't know why they're different, but there the all it is is just a difference in accounting. We don't know why the numbers were given that way, but but either way the the real important thing here is that the people were numbered. That's the real important thing is that they were numbered. As soon as David received the census report, he knew he had sinned. Now interestingly, I think it's significant in a way. <clears throat> Nine months passed. It's part of the reason I pointed out the, the duration of it, that how difficult that was a process, right? Nine months and 20 days had passed, and they came back with the report, and it was when he received the report that David realized that he was doing something wrong. It wasn't like during that nine-month period all of a sudden David went, wait a minute, we really shouldn't be doing this. So I wonder if that's one of those things where David just really didn't give it much thought. But when they showed up and they gave him the report, it uh, it hit home. It says now in verse 10 of 2 Samuel 24, it says, Now David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. I want you to note a couple things here. As soon as he realized what he had done was wrong, he confessed. That's a very important thing I want you to get out of this. David, David, for nine months, David didn't pay attention, I guess, or he wasn't really thinking about it or whatever the situation was. But after he received the report, he was troubled and he knew he had done something wrong. And as soon as he was convicted, he confessed. Right. So we can we can have the same thing happen in our life. We, We can be involved in some sinful activity for a period of time. And then not get and not get convicted immediately. But then when we get convicted, as soon as you are convicted by the Holy Spirit, you should confess. There's no reason to waste any time at that point. I mean, you've already maybe you've been sinning for a week. You know, there's nothing you can do about that. You've already you've already wasted a week, if you will, in sin. Well, don't waste any more. Now that you've been convicted by the Holy Spirit, go ahead and confess. That's what David did here. In this case. But notice also that he did not go and offer a sin offering to the Lord as this would only be required for tabernacle worship. He did This is one of the things I think is interesting. I'm going to point this out in Leviticus chapter five. So it shall be whenever he becomes guilty in one of these. And it talks about various sins previous to this in this passage. When he becomes guilty in one of these, he shall confess that in which he has sinned. Notice confession in verse five. He shall also bring his guilt offering to the Lord for his sin, which he has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat is a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for on his behalf for his sin. And it goes on from there. So now what this means is when the next time David wants to go and participate in worship at the tabernacle, he's going to need to take a sin offering. But see, because I've heard people say, well, in the Old Testament times, this is what you had to do. You had to confess and you had to bring a sacrifice. No confession of sin is how you get forgiveness of sins. And it's always been that way. There was an additional requirement under the law where they had to bring an animal for an offering so that they might be ceremonially clean, if you will, as they would go in and participate in the worship. So there's a ceremonial aspect in the Old Testament that we don't have today. When you sin, you confess. You don't have to worry about bringing an animal to the church when you want to worship. You don't have to worry about bringing an animal anytime, right? So David did not go rush off to the to the tabernacle and offer an animal, he just confessed his sin. That's all he had to do. So confession of sin is the, is, the, is the answer, and it always has been. And you notice how in that Leviticus passage, confession is the first thing mentioned in that passage. I just want to highlight that because there's confusion. Some people think that until the animal is sacrificed, that the sin is not forgiven. That's not true. The sin is forgiven once the confession is made, just like it is today. The animal sacrifice is part of what is involved in being able to participate in the tabernacle worship at the time. Uh, As I said, once confessed, David's sin was forgiven. However, there would be consequences. And we have that here today, even in our own lives. We are forgiven. We are cleansed of all unrighteousness when we confess our sins. But guess what, folks? There can be consequences. You know, if you do. You know. If you go out and commit a sin where you're involved in illegal activity, well, you can confess that sin and you can be forgiven your sin and cleansed from all unrighteousness. But when you're found out about that illegal activity, you might very well end up in jail. And you might lose your job and whatever else. Right. There's consequences. So just because it's forgiven, which is, by the way, the, the very, a very important thing, the sin being forgiven is very important. But don't think that just because the Lord has forgiven you of your sin that there won't be any consequences, and this is a good example of that. Now, David was informed <coughs> excuse me, by Gad, the prophet Gad, that he would have to choose the consequences, or at least that's what he was asked to do. You'll see that he kind of doesn't. We'll get to that in a minute. Verses 11 through 14. When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and speak to David. Thus says the Lord, I am offering you these three things. Choose for yourself one of them, which I will do to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said, Shall seven years, and we're going to see, I think this is actually a, a, a textual problem here in 2 Samuel 24. I think it's actually three years. Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land, or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and see what answer I shall return to him who sent me. So I think it's three. I think it's three years, three months or three days. I think that's what what is happening here. We'll see that in a minute. Now, in verse 14. Then David said to God, and you'll see how he kind of punted in a way, but not totally. He doesn't want he doesn't want the middle one. He doesn't want to be pursued for three months. He says, I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, he doesn't want he doesn't want to be pursued for three months. And a lot of the commentaries I read said, well, he then that means what he did is he chose the third one. Well, no, if uh, if he's saying, uh, let me fall in, let us fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercies are great. There could also have been three years of famine. In the land, God ended up bringing on the pestilence, but it could have been the three years of famine as well. <clears throat> so he had these three choices we talked about in first Chronicles 21. It words it this way, either three years of famine or three months to be swept away before your foes while the sword of sword, excuse me, of your enemies overtakes you or else three days of the sword of the Lord, even pestilence in the land it goes on to talk about the angel of the Lord, which we'll read about here. And I think this is actually the correct. The correct one, but it really doesn't matter, does it? I mean, if it's seven years of famine, it's still, you know, famine, uh, enemy pursuit or pestilence. It's one of those one of those three choices is what he has. And he threw himself on the mercies of the Lord. He did not want to be at the hand of man. He's like, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to take whatever the Lord dishes out because I trust that because the Lord is merciful. And and if you think about it, it's like, how many times have you said to yourself, man, if I were God, I would not have put up with that for nearly as long as he did. Right. We are not nearly as merciful as God is. So that's what David's trusting. All right. What the Lord did was he ended up bringing pestilence upon the people of Israel. Verses 15 through 17. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time and 70,000 men of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. <clears throat> when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel, "Who destroyed the people enough? Excuse me, it is enough. Now relax your hand." And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Araunah, <clears throat> excuse me, Arana, the Jebusite. Verse 17. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking down the people and said, Behold, it is I who have sinned, and it is I who have done wrong. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. So he's taking, he's taking personal responsibility. He doesn't want to see the people harmed. As we saw, the plague very quickly killed 70,000 people. <clears throat> you know, if you look at what's going on right now with this COVID-19 thing, I mean, I've had people actually ask me, you know, is this some kind of a plague? Well, yes, it is. The question is, uh, what is going on with it? Is, it? is it a plague that was wrought by the Lord? Possibly. I'm not going to say no. I'm not going to say yes either, because I've had no revelation, neither has anyone else, uh, as to whether or not this is a plague that's, excuse me, that's been sent by the Lord. But what's interesting is, in this particular case, it's worldwide. This case here that we're talking about here, this was a plague that was put upon the people of Israel. And 70,000 people died in a short period of time. Uh, What we're looking at in the world around us today is is definitely a plague. I don't think there's any question about it. It's pestilence. It's a plague. Uh, Whether God sent it or not, I don't know. But does the world need discipline? Yes, (laughs) we do. Uh, So the Lord intervened so that more lives would not be lost. And then David, of course, cried out to the Lord to have mercy on the people of Israel since he was the one who had done wrong. Now, I want to point out something here in this passage that I didn't put in the notes. Um, It says in verse 16, when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, it is enough. Now relax your hand. And then at the very end of this verse, it says, and the angel of the Lord. Was by the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. Now, this is the only verse that I can find in the Old Testament where that phrase, the angel of the Lord, is used where I'm not 100% certain that it's Jesus Christ. It's the pre incarnate Christ. This is one of those where this might be. Uh, that reference, the angel of the Lord, is just a reference back to the angel that's been talked about already. It's possible this is just one of the angels. It's possible that it's not talking about the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, could this be Christ? Could this be the pre-incarnate Christ that's going out and carrying out what's happening in the land? You bet it could be. But I'm not 100% certain. This is the only instance where that phrase, the angel of the Lord, is used. Now, something important to remember. This phrase is used in the Old Testament. There's a number of times where it's an angel of the Lord. When you see the indefinite article used, it's an angel of the Lord. That's just an angel. When you see the definite article used, the angel of the Lord, it's almost always the pre-incarnate Christ. Up until the incarnation. After the birth of the Christ child, you will see that expression used in the New Testament, the angel of the Lord, it's not talking about the pre-incarnate Christ anymore because he's been born into this world, right? So it can't be talking about the pre-incarnate Christ. But in the Old Testament, that phrase almost always refers to him, pre-incarnate Christ. And this, this is the one case where I could say, I could actually make an argument, this is not talking about Christ, this is just an angel. Only one. The rest of them, I can't find any other ones that are, I, I don't believe are talking about. Christ that's just a side note just something i thought you would find interesting <clears throat> now gad then told david to build an altar where the lord had shown mercy here in second uh, samuel 18 24 18 through 25 the first 3 verses the site was on a threshing floor owned by arana so david offered to buy it <clears throat> So Gad came to David that day and said to him, go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. David went up according to the word of Gad, just as the Lord had commanded. Arana looked down and saw the king and his servants crossing over toward him. And Arana went out and bowed his face to the ground before the king. Then Arana said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be held back from the people. Now, Arana responded to all this by offering the threshing floor, wood, animals, etc. to David for free of charge, no charge at all, so that he could make the offering to the Lord. That's what we see in the next couple of verses here. Verses 22 and 23. Arana said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what is good in his sight. Look, the oxen for the bird offering The threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for wood. Everything, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. So he's wanting this this offering to be pleasing to God. And he says, look, you can have it. I'm giving it all to you. And that shows the kind of person he was. But David insisted on paying. And I think he had good reason. If you look at what he says here in the beginning of verse 24... However, the king said to Arana, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, which cost me nothing. The idea is when you go in to make an offering. It is supposed to be something that it's it, costing you something. That's the idea of the offering. You're, and in fact, when it came to the animals, you were supposed to take the best of the best. When you took the lamb, if you took the lamb for sacrifice, that was supposed to be the perfect one out of your whole flock. It was supposed to be the best of the best. It was something that cost you and it didn't just cost you. It cost you dearly. And think about that in terms of a picture of what happened with Christ. I mean, that was that that cost him dearly to go to the cross on our behalf. It was not without cost to God. It's. Salvation. I I'll always love the way people talk about that. Salvation is free. It's just a matter of accepting Christ. But it's not without cost. Right? There was a cost and God had to pay the cost. So there's the answer. Jesus Christ had to go and die on the cross. Now, there's some interesting, again, text issues here, I believe, uh, that, that David paid 50 shekels for the wood and for the oxen and then 600 shekels for the sight. If we look at what it says here in this passage, though, and it says here, so David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels of silver. I don't think that's right. I think he bought the wood. Uh, I, I think what he actually bought was the threshing, the threshing sledges. He was buying some wood and the yokes of the oxen. He was buying wood, and it, it says here he bought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels of silver. But if we look over in First Chronicles 21:25 it says, so David gave Ornan. By the way, in this one, his name is recorded as Ornan. Back here in uh, our second Samuel package, passage, we have Orana. It's the same person. That's often the case where it would be, oh, sorry about that, where it would be spelled slightly different in different passages. But it says, so David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. In other words, for the threshing floor. And I think that's what's really going on. If you think about it, he paid him 600 shekels of gold for the for the location. And he paid him another 50 shekels of silver for the wood and for the uh, and for the uh, the oxen. So that's what I believe should be recorded in those passages. Again, it's just a text issue. David then built the altar and made the appropriate appropriate offerings to the Lord. We see that in the second half of verse twenty five. Or what am I looking at? The first part of it. 25a. I'm sorry. The first part of it. David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So he offered the appropriate offerings to the Lord. And then the Lord responded to the prayers being offered up for the land and had mercy on Israel. This I think, is significant. Don't just brush over this. And then at the end of verse 25, it says, thus the Lord was moved by prayer for the land. And the plague was held back from Israel. Was the Lord moved by the sacrifices that David offered on the altar? See, David did that in obedience. He was told by Gad that that's what he was supposed to do. He was supposed to build an altar and offer up sacrifices. And he did that in obedience. But what was it that moved the Lord? Prayer. That's not an insignificant thing. The Lord was moved by prayer for the land. And the plague was held back from Israel. Folks, uh, we know from the book of James in chapter 5, it talks about the the prayer of a righteous man, you know, is effective. These things are important. Uh, these things, as they're offered up, they they cause, uh, cause beautiful things to come about. And I believe, for example, that this local church is here as a result of prayer. I believe there were people who were praying that there would be a local church in this area and uh, that would be a Bible church that would be teaching the Word of God. And I believe God answered those prayers and put this church here. So prayers are a powerful and important thing. So, you know, David had confessed the sin. David offered up the burnt offerings. All these things took place. uh, And all of those things are important. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to minimize the importance of those. But what I want you to see is that the Lord was moved by the prayer for the land. And the plague was held back from Israel. The prayers of the saints are a beautiful thing before God. Powerful and a beautiful thing before God. And we shouldn't just discount the importance of that, and again, as I urged in the announcements, please be praying for rain and for some relief from this heat wave. I hope we're looking at the the last of this insane heat for the summer. I mean, I'm not talking about I'm not talking about triple digits. I'm talking about the crazy 104, 105, 106 degree temperatures. It's just just burning up the land. But please be in prayer for that. God is moved by prayer. Uh, that is a, that is an amazing and a powerful thing to understand. That He is moved by prayer. All right, that's it for our study in the life of David. Any questions for the people that are here? Anybody? All right, good. Uh, hopefully everything was clear in that in terms of the importance of the confession of the sin, the proper place uh, of the offerings and what that, what the purpose of that is, what it means, uh, and also the significance of prayer. Hopefully I highlighted all of that uh, for you. All right, now we're going to look at our Scripture of the Week. Scripture of the week, Isaiah 53, verses 1 and 2. And I'm going to give everybody just a minute to turn there if they need to. Uh, Some people are just doing it in their electronic Bibles. Others are actually turning pieces of paper. Isaiah 53, 1 and 2. So read along with me now as we read these two verses at the beginning of Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. All right. So who has believed our message? Who has believed it? Right. The message is being delivered, but who's believed it? Right. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The message goes out. The message is going out every day. There's churches all the time that are proclaiming the message of the Lord. Who's listening? Who's believing? That's, what, that's what's being asked here at the beginning. Who is believing? Now, that's an important thing, by the way. The message has to go out. Uh, just like God had to exhort uh, Jeremiah. Jeremiah felt like nobody was believing. Nobody was believing the message he was delivering. Everybody was listening to the false prophets. They wouldn't believe what he was telling them. Um, you know, they get, they get taken away. I don't know if you've been reading along in the Bible reading, but the, we're right there in Jeremiah now. The people of Israel got taken away to Babylon, and there were false prophets telling the people, it's only going to last a couple of years, and then we'll be coming back. And Jeremiah was delivering a message saying, well, you're going to be there for 70 years. Which means, by the way, what does that mean for most of the people? Most of the people aren't going to be around to come back to the land. You know, two years, almost everybody who's been taken to captivity is going to come back 70 years. Well, most of the people who went into captivity are not going to ever come back. And that's why the message Jeremiah had is make for yourselves houses, have children, you know, all those things in the land of Babylon. You know, you've got to settle in in Babylon because it's going to be 70 years before you, you, you're brought back to the land, before the people of Israel are brought back to the land. But that was not a popular message, right? That was not a popular message. People like the message that they got from the false prophets. And so this whole thing, who has believed our message and to whom has the, whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's a great question. I mean, the prophets all felt like that. They had to ask, who's believing what we're telling them? You know, and and as a pastor, you wonder sometimes, I mean, when you're preaching the word and you say to yourself, I wonder who's really getting anything out of this, who's believing this, who's benefiting from this message. And then he goes on to talk about this is actually talking about. The branch, the Christ, uh, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot. That's the language of the branch that's been used before the branch that is our Lord Jesus Christ, a tender shoot. You notice both the he and the him are capitalized in there if you have your Bible open right now. And that's, uh, that's because it's talking about Christ, who is God, growing up before the Father like a tender shoot. And it says, and like a root out of, the, out of parched ground. And this is very important. Parched ground. If you think about that for a second, if you look at the, if you look at the land right now, we it's, we got a vivid picture of it right now. The ground around us is parched. I mean, it's just extremely dry. We're hoping for rain either tonight or tomorrow, but everything is extremely parched. And out of that parched ground, every once in a while, something still sprouts up. Something still comes up. A little tender shoot comes up out of the ground. Now, I don't know exactly why this is, but it seems like that's more often than not a weed that does that. But nonetheless, it seems like the stuff comes up out of the parched ground. In this case, we're not talking about a weed. We're talking about a precious, tender shoot. The parched ground here is not actual earth. This is just a description to help us understand what is parched is is talking about spiritually. That when Christ comes, right, when he this this is looking forward to the future, right? When Christ comes, it's going to be parched. Spiritually, things are going to be pretty parched, pretty desolate, Right? At that time, it's going to be a time with where there's not much in terms of faith. And those who claim to be of the faith are going to be those who are not really of the faith. You're going to see that it's a parched ground that the tender shoot comes out of. And that, and that came to fruition. When Christ came, there were people of faith. But the reality of it is, spiritually, it was very parched. And that's significant. I think, you know, it's interesting because that's going to be true. I mean, the scriptures tell us that's going to be true when he comes to get the church too. The rapture is going to take place when things are very parched. So when Christ came in in, in this in the first advent, things were very parched. Uh, When Christ comes at the rapture, things are going to be very parched spiritually. Now, look at this last part. This is what really took me to this passage. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Now, this is the only thing, by the way, we have in our Bibles that gives us any inkling of what it is that Jesus looked like. But what it tells us is that he was not some. Hollywood movie star, impressive individual in terms of his look and his looks and his stature. He was just an ordinary guy. He was just an ordinary guy in terms of his humanity. He was not as he didn't stand out. (coughs) Excuse me. Tickle in my throat. He didn't stand out in any way. Now. Think about. The anointing of David. We go back to that again, right? Anointing of David. When Samuel showed up, of course, Samuel was a great prophet. But nonetheless, when he showed up, he sees David's brother and he goes, oh, wow, this has got to be the one, right? This has got to be him. And God said, no. God said, I am not looking upon the outward appearance. I'm looking at the inward. I'm looking at the heart. Right? So it makes sense to me. And if you think about it, it should make sense to you as well. It makes sense to me that when God sent his son to dwell in the likeness of human flesh, he didn't make him a pretty boy. He didn't make him tall and stately in appearance. He didn't do any of that. God sent his son in a form that was looked like anyone, a common man, just a common man. The point of Christ's coming was not that he was some standout individual in terms of his appearance was think about did the appearance of our savior jesus christ matter one way or the other think about that should not have been should not have mattered at all to anyone but keep think about go back again as, as i said the anointing of david think about the mentality of the jews at the time he came they were looking for a king that was going to come and rescue them from their Roman captivity, right? They did not want to be under Roman domination. They wanted a king to come along and save them out of that. So what were they looking for? They were looking for somebody who looked like he, he would be able to take them out and lead the armies of Israel and save them. So they were looking for somebody of stately form. They were looking for somebody who was impressive in appearance and looked like a, looked to them like in their eyes like a great warrior. So, the fact that he came and had the appearance and was not any kind of, in any kind of way would stand out in a crowd is significant. God sent him that way on purpose. Remember, he could have, he could have come in human form and looked like anything. God could have made him look like anything. But he came in a, such a manner that he had no stately form or majesty or no appearance that we should be attracted to him. He came as a common man. You wouldn't even notice him in a crowd. Contrast that with what I believe, I'm fully convicted about this, what I believe is going to happen when you get to the Antichrist. I believe that when the Antichrist comes, he's going to be big, he's going to be strong, he's going to be handsome, he's going to be somebody who when he goes on television or on the internet or whatever else he does, everybody's going to immediately be attracted to him and they're going to listen to anything and everything that he says I want you to think about this for a second. <clears throat> this is sad. What I'm, about to tell, what I'm about to tell you is sad. But I'm telling you, I have seen it with my own two eyes. <clears throat> in the world we live in today, we know the way advertising is done, sex sells, right? That they will do anything and everything they can to try to sell you a product by using some sexually provocative woman. Uh, or some really handsome man, right? Well, I have witnessed with my own two eyes men who when they see a really, really, really pretty woman who's on the TV set and she's spouting off this or that or the other thing, it could be on the Internet, it could be anywhere, spouting off this or that or the other thing. They are just listening along and whatever she says there's like, oh, OK, you know, they're just basically dumbfounded. By the fact that she's such a beautiful woman and they'll listen to anything she says. And by the way, people do that on purpose. If you look at the if you look at the people that they get for newscasts, you get for the people that they do for for being in various reporter roles and whatnot. They look for attractive women because they know by using an attractive woman, they're going to get the men to listen to anything they say. Same thing's true the other way around. You get a really handsome looking guy and you put him up there and he's talking about things. The women are going to listen to that. So I believe that Satan, when he brings the Antichrist, he he is going to be an amazing specimen. He's going to be again, like I said, I think he's going to be tall. I think he's going to be strong. He's going to be handsome. And man, when he starts talking, everybody's going to listen. And so the contrast between what Satan's going to do with the Antichrist and what God did with the Christ shows the difference because God is all God is not focused on those sorts of things. Those sorts of things are trivial in God's sight. He's not concerned about appearances. He's not concerned about all of that sort of thing. And he brought his own son into the world in this way that we're reading about here in Isaiah 53, not. Of stately form or majesty and not of some appearance appearance that you would even notice. Right. That we should be attracted to him. That you would even you wouldn't even notice him. And so he did that on purpose. And it really shows the difference between the way God works and the way Satan works. And Satan, by the way, he's been playing that game for a long time and he's still doing it today. He focuses people's attention on the outward appearance of things and not on what really is going on. And that's true. You know, it's true. With regard to the way we look at other people, because Satan wants you to look at outward appearance, he wants you to judge people according to what they look like. God wants us to try to look at the heart. And uh, by the way, and that same thing's true. The same thing's true with regard to uh, not talking about people, but talking about you know organizations, things like that. Organization. Satan wants us to look at the outward appearance. We are supposed to actually look at what's really in there. What's what is it really all about? And uh, along those lines, just as a quick commentary here, almost every time you hear somebody say it's for the common good, you should turn and run. (laughs) You should turn and run away. That's a that's a comment that sounds good on the surface. Again, Satan likes us to look at the surface. It sounds good on the surface, but it almost always means bad things. You know, you look at organizations. I mean, I could I've seen people who look at the United Nations, for example. And they think that's a good thing because they're just looking at the surface. They're just looking at the outward appearance of the United Nations. But If you really understand what the United Nations is all about, you really understand it from biblical principles and divine establishment principles, you know, it's not a good thing. And that so this this passage really tells us something about God and how he works about he he's looking at the heart. He's looking at what what the reality is about what someone really is versus Outward appearance, and so he brought his own son into the world in such a way that he was not uh, what I like. I said again, I believe the antichrist is going to be the antithesis of this. He's going to be somebody. Everybody's going to be attracted to him. He's going to be somebody that has stately form and majesty, a very impressive looking individual. Because Satan knows that he's going to get the attention of the masses by doing that. Any questions? Anything? <clears throat> All right. Well, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, you have uh, blessed us with many things to learn today, and we thank you for that. We look at this failure of David near the end of his life. This, was a, this is someone who had sin in his life earlier on and had gotten his life together and was walking in a, in a manner worthy. We know that he's a man after your, your own heart, Father. We, we see that from your word, but at the same time, he was still able to be tripped up by Satan. He still had a sin nature. And he still made a mistake by numbering the people. And, uh, Father, he was probably thinking that he was going to be able to boast in the, the mightiness of the Israeli army rather than focusing on uh, your ability to help them through whatever they would face. But whatever caused him to do it, whatever was in David's mind, he made a mistake. And it just re- reminds all of us that no matter how mature we get in our faith, no matter how long we've been walking in the light as Jesus is in the light as no matter no matter how how uh, solid we are in our faith, we can be tripped up and we need to remember that. And uh, this was one that had consequences. People died as a result of what David did. We need to realize our own sin has consequences. So, Father, help us to take sin seriously. Help us to realize that we need your strength to be able to combat, combat the devil. We need your strength. We need your wisdom to be able to to live the life that you've designed for us to live. So help us to realize our own weakness and to rely upon your strength, Father. And also, thank you for this message out of Isaiah, just to remind us that you look upon the heart. You're not looking at outward appearance. It's all about what's in our hearts, and you are able to see our hearts more clearly than we can see our own hearts. So, Father, help us to understand that that's the key. That's the focus. Let us not be... Let us not be naive. Let us not live our lives in such a way that we look at the superficial things. Help us to look into what things really are. To understand people's hearts. To look at things that happen in the world and understand them for for what they really are. Not what they appear to be at the surface, Father. Help us to have that wisdom. Help us to have that kind of a mentality that we're going to understand things for what they really are. And help us to show the love of Christ to everyone around us. Not Not just other believers. But even to the unbelievers around us, help us to have the loving kindness and the long suffering that you do to show Christ to others so that we might be able to lead them to Christ. Father, we pray all of these things in his most precious and holy name. Amen.